Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. Thank you to all my listeners for a great start to this podcast. We had just shy of 2,000 downloads in the month of June, which far exceeded my wildest expectations. The amount of amazing feedback and support I've received from fans and fellow podcasters is nothing short of a blessing. Today's episode is going to be my first dive into a controversial officer-involved shooting. I'll do my best to stick to the facts and offer my opinion on things only when I feel it's relevant. But know that I respect alternate opinions as we all are allowed to believe what we want to believe and the only way we can improve as a society is to work together as best we can. If you would like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website via truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. Finally, if you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. It helps expand our listenership. Thank you so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The story of Tarzan was inspired by a possibly true but likely highly fictionalized version of a feral child raised in the wilds by animals. In roughly 1868, a young Englishman of noble blood ran away from home and became a cabin boy on a ship bound for South Africa. When the ship was wrecked in a storm, he survived by floating on debris until he hit the mainland of Western Africa. Having heard tales of cannibalistic tribes, he sought shelter in the jungle and was taken in by a troop of gorillas that fed him edible plants and grubs. He learned to communicate with them via a primitive form of sign language and lived with the troop for years until he gained the trust of a local tribe of humans. According to his memoirs, he spent 15 years in the jungles of Africa before returning to England and reclaiming his noble standing. While many believe his memoirs themselves are works of fiction, they grew into a fully romanticized story when an avid outdoorsman named Edgar Burroughs published Tarzan of the Apes in 1912. The tale took several liberties to the memoirs, but it became a pop sensation, and since 1918 there have been at least 45 adaptations of the story in cinema alone, to include the very popular 1999 Disney animated version, and as recently as the 2016 movie The Legend of Tarzan. In the 1950s and 60s, there were 16 Tarzan movies released, including Tarzan and the She-Devil and Tarzan and the Slave Girl. My personal favorite title is Tarzan and the Mermaids, which I may have to watch at a Mystery Science Theater 3000 kind of night sometime in the future. With the massive popularity of the movie franchise, it only made sense to adapt it to the small screen as well, and in 1966, a shirtless and muscular Ron Ely was cast to wear Tarzan's loincloth and swing through the jungle and dive off waterfalls. The show would run for three years and air 57 episodes on NBC from 1966 to 1968. The star, Ron Ely, had already had some success in Hollywood in both cinema and TV, but his casting as Tarzan solidified his future and landed him several other key and guest roles until he retired from acting in 1994. 
other than a guest role in 2001 on a TV show called Sheena, which was a female version of Tarzan, Ron's only other return to acting was playing an Amish elder in the 2014 Lifetime movie Expecting Amish. Now, before we explore the tragedy of today's episode, let's learn more about Ron and his family. Ron Ely was born Ronald Pierce Ely on June 21, 1938. He started in show business in 1958, landing a role in the movie version of the very popular musical South Pacific and in the Western film The Man Who Walked West. One year later, he was on the main billing for his role in the remarkable Mr. Pennypacker. He landed some minor roles in the early 1960s and then auditioned for Tarzan in the mid-60s. Standing six foot four, sporting a handsome face and muscular physique, Ron was the perfect fit to play the ruggish and romantic Tarzan. During filming for the show, he refused to allow stuntmen to perform his stunts, and over the course of the almost 60 episodes, he suffered over two dozen injuries, including broken bones and lion bites. After Tarzan ended, Ron continued to find work and was casted in many Tarzan spin-offs and Tarzan-like roles, such as his lead role in Doc Savage, The Man of Bronze in 1975. While continuing to find various small roles, he was asked to host the telecast of the Miss America pageant in 1980 and 1981. After hosting the beauty pageant in 1981, he started a relationship with a contestant from Florida named Valerie Lundeen. Valerie Lundeen was born in 1957, and at the age of 23, she was working as a flight attendant when she won Miss Airlines International in 1980. She would go on to compete in the Miss Florida pageant in 1981 and won a spot to compete for the title of Miss America that same year. After three years of dating, Ron and Valerie married in 1984, and they would have three children, daughters Kristen and Caitlin Ely and son Cameron Ely. While some of the sources say Ron retired from acting in 2001, most of the information out there shows he didn't have many roles between 1994 and 2001. He would later say that he retired so that he could help raise his children, and it appeared he started working from home in 1994 as he published two crime novels. In 1994, he published a book called Night Shadows, and in 1995, he published East Beach, A Mystery. Other than a single episode appearance on Sheena in 2001, it appears Ron spent most of the late 90s and the first decade and a half after 2000 doing what he wanted to do in his retirement, which was focus on his family. He would later say he was able to spend this time attending his kids' activities and coaching their sports teams. Most of this story is going to center around his son Cameron, so we'll dive a little into Cameron's background at this point. Cameron inherited his father's height, athleticism, and good looks. At six foot five, he was not only a phenomenal athlete and a highly touted quarterback, he was said to have high intelligence to go along with his physical talent. He spent his final two years of high school at Phillips Exeter Academy, a $50,000 a year exclusive boarding school in New Hampshire, and then was accepted in Harvard in 2007. He was recruited to play quarterback for the team and was listed as a top recruit in 2007, but never saw the field and was not listed on any official rosters. Cameron did attend Harvard and graduated with an undergraduate degree in psychology in 2012. Although not much is known about his work or studies after 2012, 
In 2014, Ron did say all of his children were through school with advanced degrees. So it's possible Cameron did a graduate program somewhere. But the next known fact is that Cameron was granted a security guard license in 2017 by the state of California. On the evening of October 15, 2019, at around 8.15 p.m., a call came into the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's 911 Center. A male caller, later identified as Cameron Ely, who was now 30 years old, called 911 and stated his mother attacked his father and he defended his father and then hung up the phone. The dispatcher tried to call back and this time Ron Ely answered, but the dispatcher could not understand what Ron was saying. Three Santa Barbara County Sheriff's deputies were dispatched to the home. And to set the stage, this is not your typical single family home. The Ely Mansion sits on 1.5 acres of fenced-in privacy in an exclusive area of the county. The five-bedroom, 6,400-square-foot, $5 million home is actually more of a compound with a main area, two wings, a pool, a fenced-in tennis court, and a large pool house guest house. Upon arrival, the deputies found the 62-year-old Valerie Ely deceased on the kitchen floor with multiple stab wounds. They also located the 81-year-old Ron Ely in a nearby room. Ron was suffering from health problems and could barely speak. Radio traffic captured deputies saying they have a homicide victim and a man who could hardly talk and they believed they were looking for a third party involved in the incident. Reports would later state that no emergency first aid personnel were sent to the scene and Valerie is not giving any medical attention for the first 42 minutes after deputies arrived. So that was a lot to cover, just setting the stage, who these people are, you know, they're living in this big compound, really nice house in Santa Barbara County, California. And what deputies know as they arrive is that one male called 911 stating something about his mother attacking his father and he defended his his father and then hung up the phone and then as dispatchers are trained to do they're trying to get as much information as possible they call the number back but this time ron ely answers now ron's in pretty poor health at this point he's 81 years old and it sounded as if in the research that he had some type of a speech impediment or difficulty speaking so this is why dispatch isn't able to get a lot of information from him and when deputies arrive they're gonna relay to to dispatch that we've got a guy here that can barely speak so if you talk to somebody on the phone we're looking for a third person and this is going to come up later and we'll discuss it again there's 42 minutes until ems is on scene I couldn't verify that no EMS was sent to the scene. It seems really strange. Anytime there's an assault on somebody and somebody sustains injuries, it's automatic that fire or EMS personnel are going to be sent to the scene, but they're not allowed to enter the scene until it's deemed quote unquote safe to enter. And that's because in most fire departments, ambulance services, whatever they may be, these are not trained uh, personnel in self-defense, uh, defensive tactics, or and they don't carry firearms or any form of weapon. And so when they're on scene, they're relying on 
the scene to be secured from somebody coming back. I mean, they already have one person who's been stabbed to death, and the person responsible, they don't know where this person is. So in a small house or an apartment, it's not very difficult to secure that scene and have that personnel come into the home. But in this situation, we're talking about a, a mansion with you know, main area, multiple wings, a garage, a, a large guest house, pool area, tennis courts. There's kind of uh, you know vegetation along the fence lines of this of this 1.5 acre property. So there's a lot of places where the person who committed this this fatal stabbing could be hiding, and with initially just having three deputies, and I don't know how long it took to get more deputies there, but initially this would be a very hard scene and they're also talking to ron at this point or trying to communicate with ron at this point so you've got maybe one or two deputies tied up doing that so there really isn't the resources to make this scene secure at this point and then we also have to outweigh when officers arrive the potential for any life-saving intervention to actually be successful and it sounds like it's a really morbid and horrible thought that you would not try to render aid to somebody, but in cases where somebody's obviously deceased, and that's gunshot wounds to the head, that's decapitations, you know, signs of rigor mortis or lividity in the body, in body where the person's been dead for eight plus hours, there really is no point in having more people come into your scene because uh, at that point you're more concerned about evidence preservation and having extra bodies touch your crime scene walk through your crime scene bring stuff into your crime scene potentially leave stuff there that's all stuff that has to be either explained away and it's a it's one of many double-edged swords we'll talk about in this episode because you're going to get people saying you should have had first responders in there right away trying to try to save this woman's life and even if the deputies later verbalized she was beyond help if something gets ha- or something happens and something is messed up on the scene and and you know, shoe print is misattributed to somebody that was EMS or DNA is transferred to something or, or whatever it's going to be then there's questions asked as to why the the scene wasn't preserved for evidence better so it's kind of one of those double-edged swords that especially in this chaotic type of environment where you have a suspect still large it's decisions have to be made and sometimes the decisions that are made in especially with hindsight and that's going to be a huge part of this case as well when you look at it through hindsight you can definitely make different judgments on the decisions that were made but we have to look at it as if you're one of those first three responding officers to this scene and if valerie is obviously deceased your mind immediately is more important for your safety and and ron's safety at that point because you're also responsible for if if this guy comes back and attacks ron so not only do you have to have somebody talking with him you have to have somebody staying with him to provide him security so introducing a whole bunch of other people you need to provide security for is, at this point is not a good idea. But eventually EMS is going to be led on scene and they're going to de- declare Valerie dead at the scene. 
and officers are able to somehow communicate with Ron at this point and learn that it is a family member that's responsible for Valerie's death, and in this case it's going to be their 30-year-old son, Cameron. And at this point, you've got... You know, you've now got first responders, EMS on scene. You've got additional officers on scene, probably some form of supervisor, incident commander on scene. You're starting to conduct a homicide investigation, but you still have the suspect at large. So there's still a lot of moving parts, especially early on in this this part of the investigation. Uh, likely investigators, detectives might be on scene or they might be prepping back at a, a station or a headquarters to come out to the scene, um, and by prepping I mean a lot of that time is going to be spent securing things like search warrants so that anything that is found will be deemed admissible in court as opposed to wandering through and picking up items of evidence and then later finding out that the courts are not going to allow those in because you didn't have a search warrant. So again, a lot of moving parts at this point. And then we add in the fact that now 90 minutes after deputies arrive, they're going to be approached by a blood-covered Cameron Ely in the driveway of the home. Now, it's unknown where he was for this 90 minutes, and officers or reports aren't really going to say. Uh, now, when you look at the compound, the, the pool house is in the, kind of the far back of the compound, kind of near these tennis courts, and and, and it was described as more of a guest house with a bedroom, bathroom, office, and living room, I want to say, all all in it. So this is a, a the size of a regular apartment or single-family home at this point alone. And, I, again, I assume officers searched this, but I don't know if they were able to search everything. And, again, we've got that vegetation along the fence lines. He could have been – this is now – past nine o'clock at night on, on October. Uh, so we're gonna be well into to no sunlight. So you got extremely dark areas. I don't know how well lit the yard is. So again, there's many different places that Cameron could have been hiding at this point. And regardless of where he was for this 90 minutes, he's gonna approach deputies who order him to a prone position on the ground. And this is a very common thing when somebody walks onto a scene or even if it's a single officer or multiple officers, the person is least likely to be a threat when they're prone out on the ground. And prone out means they're laying on their stomach on the ground, their feet behind them, and their arms usually out to the side is, is the classic prone position. And this eliminates their hands from getting underneath their body to, to reach at any weapons or whatever it may be there. You're able to see that their hands are empty and in order for them to make any type of aggressive movement, they're gonna have to get up off the ground. They can't attack officers from this position. So when they see Cameron, he's gonna come out, he's as described as covered in blood. He's already their suspect for the stabbing. So they're already gonna deem him to be potentially dangerous. He's already taken one life and there is audio exchange of this between the deputies, deputies and Cameron, but the way that their squads were parked, and this is another thing I think we've talked about in the past, but 
Squad cars don't just come squealing up to the front of a house in a situation like this. They're usually gonna park like a half block away from the house down the road and approach on foot because if somebody's waiting to ambush officers, they're likely waiting for a squad car to stop right in front of the house and then they'll open up on that squad car. Whereas if they can't see where that squad car is and they have to wait and judge when a, a single officer walks out in front of the house, that officer has a much better chance to escape, evade, not be shot, whatever it might be. So these officers' cars are parked some distance away and they have this engagement with Cameron, a verbal engagement with him in the driveway of the house. So there's distance from the mics that they carry on them to the recording devices in the squad cars. And as a result of that, some of the audio is getting picked up, but some of it is just pure static. And as a result, you do hear some of the things that the deputies are going to later put in the reports about telling him to put his hands up and not to move and don't reach for anything. And these are all common commands given to uh, a suspect in one of these situations. But unfortunately, there's also a whole lot of static overlay that just erases all other audio. And there's certain parts of, in the deputy's reports that are not heard on the audio, which doesn't mean they didn't happen, but it means that there is not proof that they did happen other than the officer's or deputy's words. And it's said in there that there was no body cameras. And keep in mind, we're in the time period in law enforcement in 2019 between what we call kind of the Ferguson era and then the George Floyd era. And it really does stink for law enforcement that we have to refer to some of these time periods by these incidents that kind of spark national outrage or whatever it might be. But they, ultimately, they do cause changes in policing. Um, whether it be for the good or the bad. But in the cases of pretty much every department that I know of after uh, George Floyd incident in 2020 <laughs> went to body cams. There was, there was no holding out anymore at that point. But this is pre that time. It did mention somewhere that there was no body cam footage. It mentioned in there that the equipment they, 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 they did have was not top of the line equipment and even in watching one of the squad cam videos to me the system looked like it was an old VHS system and I might be wrong about that but it was just how it looked on the camera recording system it looked did not look like a digital recording system so this might have been a, a situation where there wasn't money in the budget to increase their technology and as a result we don't have clear-cut audio and, and there is no visual of what the officers are seeing at this time. So we just have to go off what the officers put in their reports and it's reported that although Cameron initially complied with their orders, at some point he yelled, I have a gun, and hopped up from the ground. Now some deputies describe this as a kung fu move and where he took a low kind of threw himself up from the ground into a low stance and reached for his waistline. And then deputies claim he lunged forward in a forward and upward manner, kind of like a lineman in a football game coming out of his stance. And it was at this point that four deputies opened fire. And while reports vary, the majority of sources say that Cameron was shot 22 times and he was hit in the neck, torso, and arms. 
Ultimately, Cameron was found to not be in possession of a weapon, and his pockets held a key fob, a phone, a small metal garden hose splitter, a stack of playing cards, small rocks, a bank card, crumbled papers, and an empty small plastic baggie with white powdery residue that tested positive for cocaine. Now, I guess before we get into kind of the investigation at this point, I think it's very important that we break down the actual shooting itself. We haven't done this yet. We haven't talked about it yet. Um, the only officer involved shooting that I can recall that we covered is the North Hollywood shootout, and that was far from what was going on in this instance. So when we talk about shootings and going forward, if I cover more cases like this, there's some things that as law enforcement officers were, were taught, were trained, it's, it's explained to us in, in both before you start the job and, and as you start the job and as you continue to work the job, that these critical incidents, these officer-involved shootings are constantly coming under more and more studies. And we are learning more and more things about the psychology and physiology of these events. And there's a lot that's going on in this very short amount of time in a critical incident. We're talking about likely from the time that he changed positions from a prone position to standing to lunging at officers to then the shots being fired, maybe on the long end would be five seconds of time. And that doesn't sound like a lot of time, but there is a lot going on in that five seconds in terms of what's going on with with Cameron himself, the officer's reactions, and everything. So we're going to kind of break it down here as the seconds before, during, and after critical incident. So even before Cameron is going to just hop up and lunge the officers, officers already have additional chemicals going through their body produced by their brain, uh, such as adrenaline, that is preparing them for what is going to come. They know there's a threat in front of them. They have a guy who just killed somebody with a knife, and they don't know where he's been the last 90 minutes. They don't know what he's been doing, and he's coming at them you know, covered in blood. So instantly, they're, they're going to be getting all these chemicals dumped into their system to get ready for what we call the fight-or-flight reaction. And the result of this is that it's going to pump a lot of extra... I guess strength is the way to put it into certain senses and dull other senses because when the threat is right in front of you, your body realizes that that's the most important thing at that moment. And so oftentimes officers get what's called tunnel vision. And that's where all of their depth, their, sorry, their peripheral vision disappears and all they see is a path in front of them referred to as the tunnel and that's all that they see so they're not going to see things to the right or the left of them they're not going to see what their other partners are doing or other people are doing or whatever it might be they're going to just see you know this roughly you know 10 foot by 10 foot area right in front of them that that forms this tunnel and as a result it's also going to drop a lot of senses that we don't particularly feel like we need at that moment. And sometimes this results in things such as a hearing loss where officers afterwards will, will tell you that they didn't hear anything, even though 
everybody else off in the distance heard everything crystal clear that wasn't involved in the incident. They can tell you exactly what they heard or what was said or what it might be. And the officers who actually were involved directly with this incident can tell you the last thing they heard and then the next thing they heard. And oftentimes it's after the, the kind of the ringing sound of the gunshots leaves your ears. That might be the first time they're actually hearing something as somebody grabs their attention or whatever it might be. So we're also, the brain isn't worried about remembering anything that's happening at this point because it is, again, focused every ounce of energy and sensory and everything like that into the issue at hand right in front of these officers. So it's dumped every amount of processing power in the brain into dealing with what is directly in front of that person. And as a result, things like short-term memory loss will occur where afterwards officers will get asked questions. How many rounds did you fire at the suspect? And they'll either not even know, or they'll just make an assumption. I, I don't know, like two or three. And in reality, between the loss of hearing, the, um, tunnel vision, everything else, the sensory deprivation, they might end up firing a full magazine and not uh, and not even realize it at this point. So again, these are things that as more and more studies come out, they know that this is the stuff that's going on with the officers and it's not something that officers can control. Yes, they can train. You can put officers under more and more stress on in practice simulations and situations to try to condition the brain to react better under stress but it's very difficult to do and it'll never fully replicate a deadly force situation and we also have kind of more of an extended time period too on this shooting because i mentioned that cameron was hit in the neck torso and arms and despite what you see on tv and i know i say that a lot but despite what you see on the tv and the movies there's only two incapacitating shots in a in any shooting situation and that's if there's severe damage to the spinal cord slash brain stem or the brain itself and that's the only way to get that immediate knockout situation when you hit somebody in the torso there's enough blood running through the system even if you hit them in the heart or the aorta or anything like that it's going to take them roughly 30 seconds to lose enough blood to the point that they lose consciousness. There's still enough oxygen reaching the cells. The blood that is ex still existing in the system will keep the brain supplied and everything like that for even on a massive damage to the heart or your order for 30 seconds or so before they drop. So as I mentioned, all the stuff that's going on in five seconds, now extend that to somebody can still fight for you know, roughly 30 seconds after they've been been hit in the chest so again none of these shots from what i'm hearing unless one of the ones in the neck actually ended up in the brainstem area meant that cameron wasn't able to continue to pose a threat and then we add on top of it he did have that baggie of cocaine in his pocket and ultimately we're going to talk about the toxicology says and there are drugs in his system in the toxicology any drug that alters somebody's central nervous system has the ability to potentially block pain reception or signals to the brain or at least cause them to misfire to the point that some people on certain drugs, uh, mainly more like PCP or 
or whatnot, but they'll have superhuman strength and they'll have no pain and they can be shot 17, 20 times. And again, unless it's a shot to the head or a shot to a major organ that causes blood loss, they can fight for minutes uh, after being shot because the, the normal functioning of the, of the body is being interrupted by those chemicals. So there's a lot going on again in this, in this short amount of time that officers are shooting uh, Cameron and hitting him 22 times and we'll, we'll break it down a little bit more later on when we talk about some of the some of the complaints in this case but just know again that all of these incidents where it's officer involved shooting it's a situation where there's more stress and more physiological and psychological changes going on than we can ever probably understand uh, e even if we tr you know with the amount of effort that we've put towards it so what looks like on a surface or surface level of four officers shot a whole bunch of times and a guy that didn't have ultimately didn't have a weapon there's more to it than that but that's that's often how it's written out in the media or portrayed or whatever it might be when we break it down to the lack of incapacitating shots, the fact there's drugs in the system, the fact that you've got what we call the totality, totality of circumstances where you're bringing everything into your decision making here with the, you know, this wasn't just a guy that, you know, was, had been yelling at his parents and was went stormed off to the pool house and now he came out and you're trying to control the situation. This is a guy that you know just committed a homicide. So again, it's the totality of everything that's going on here and the officers have to bring that in in a split second make these decisions. So with Cameron deceased, investigators would conduct their investigation and quickly learn from Ron that a family member is responsible for the attack and they determined that Cameron attacked his mother fatally stabbing with her knife. So they actually had that figured out before uh, the incident with Cameron or at least mostly figured out before that. But as for motive, you know, there's going to be some things we'll talk about a little bit later, but as for why things happened, I guess, not not just motive, but how it kind of went down, it's possible they believe that the that Cameron may have had some type of intention to blame his father for the attack. And it doesn't make a lot of sense given his father's health condition. And I don't think it was ever part of his plan to blame his mother for attacking his father and and him defending his father because that seemed to kind of quickly fall apart as he hung up the phone and ran off so i guess ultimately it's it's possible he had some type of plan in place to kill his mother and somehow shift the blame on somebody else or maybe some type of a home invasion gone wrong and his father came across the scene and he panicked or he didn't think his father would hear or be able to make it to the kitchen, and, and he did. So, again, how everything went down is, is still a question, uh, mainly because both the victim and now the suspect of the homicide, the only two people that we know that were around at, at the exact time of, of the homicide are both deceased at this point. Now, one report stated that Cameron had injuries prior to the officer-involved shooting, but it's unclear if these would be injuries sustained in a knife attack. And it said that he had lacerations and bruises. And one thing people don't often take into account is that a lot of spur-of-the-moment 
uh, homicidal attacks involving knives. They occur in the kitchen, and they occur as somebody grabs a kitchen knife. And a kitchen knife is made for cutting, it's made for stabbing, and it does work uh, to end somebody's life or seriously injure them. But what they're not designed for is you know, this hand-to-hand -hand combat. And because they don't have what's called a guard on most kitchen knives, that as you're stabbing somebody, and again, this is going to be morbid, but as you're stabbing somebody, blood is being produced by these stabs, by the body, and that blood is very, very slippery. And so as somebody's stabbing somebody, their hands get covered in the blood, the shaft of the knife gets covered in the blood, and at some point they end up often sliding their hand down the shaft and then end up cutting themselves on the knife blade as they're stabbing. That's why combat knives that you see whether it be the military, the old K-bar, or whatever it might be, they've got guards on them that prevent that hand from coming down into the blade area as they're being used to stab someone. Kitchen knives aren't designed for that, so they, they aren't that way. In a lot of incidences where stabbings occur with kitchen knives, they'll often find suspect DNA mixed in because the suspect will end up stabbing themselves. So it's unknown whether those were the injuries that officer saw on camera it's also possible that he may have tried to take his own life during that 90 minutes and may have slit his wrists and those might be the lacerations they're talking about and that's where the majority of the blood is coming from is, is from self-inflicted injuries or it might be that he was you know hiding in these in this vegetation and he might have been getting all cut up by the vegetation and part of that makes me think that that's maybe where he was hiding was what it was found in his pockets which was that metal hose splitter and the small rocks that were in his pocket to me that's something where if he's having some type of a mental episode which we'll talk about in a little bit here it's possible he just started picking up stuff around him and putting it in his pockets for some unknown reason but that would make more sense that he was out hiding in the yard and that's how that stuff ended up in his pockets than that he was walking around all day with you know a metal hose splitter and small rocks in his pockets Now, it is reported that initially Cameron's sisters told deputies that Cameron had been acting erratic and unstable in the days leading up to the incident, and this behavior had been steadily increasing. One of his sisters went as far as saying Cameron had become delusional and she was afraid to be around him if she was alone, and she urged her mother to call police. Prosecutors would later say that testing of Cameron's brain during autopsy showed early signs of, of chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE. It's a common form of brain damage seen in heavy contact sports participants that are prone to concussions such as football and hockey players. Cameron's family did confirm that he had multiple concussions from his time as a football player. And I saw this you know, as police officers we get dispatched to medicals um, just for this exact reason we talked about with the scene safety for the EMS or just to start doing some basic first aid or life saving before EMS could get there and I had a case once where a, a hockey player high school hockey player uh, was down on the ice from a concussion and you know I've seen kids with concussions before but this kid was he was far gone from this concussion and we had to kind of hold back his father because his father wanted him to keep playing in this hockey game. And I think his father made some comment about, he's had multiple concussions, he's fine, he'll be fine tomorrow, Like just let him play. And 
I kind of want to look at the dad and just say, your son's brain is turning into scrambled eggs. And I don't mean that to be, you know, mean towards the kid or anything like that, but these concussions is the result of the basically the brain hitting the skull during high impacts. And the more that happens, the more you have a potential for brain damage. Our brain isn't very good at healing itself. And so the more that this happens, the better chance you have of, of having permanent damage. And so whether it be hockey or football players, those repeated concussions, it's not always just the first concussion or how large a single concussion is. It's the repeated damage to the areas of the brain, especially if they you know, occur in a short period of time from each other. And I did some of my own research. And according to the Mayo Clinic, people suffering from repeated hits to the head via contact sports can develop CTE and during the early stages of CTE, certain behaviors such as increased aggression and emotional response is common. The Mayo Clinic also states CTE is a chronic disease that may not present itself immediately after injury, but could take years or a decade to develop, and the early symptoms of increased aggression and behavior changes most commonly present in someone's late 20s and early 30s. So if we look at Cameron, families confirming he's had multiple concussions, he did get through college just fine, but that's his early 20s. And now when the Mayo Clinic is saying this is his danger period for the this stuff to start to present itself, the paranoid, the uh, aggressive behavior, all that kind of stuff is what his sisters are describing is happening in the days leading up to this. And then we have on top of it, you know, the cocaine found in his pocket and then toxicology report for Cameron's stated he had THC, amphetamines, and a 0.04 blood alcohol level when he was killed. And the amphetamines on drug tests most likely come from ecstasy or meth. So that doesn't match up with the cocaine that's found in his pocket, but who knows when, you know, he may have taken the cocaine. But ecstasy and meth are also known to contribute to paranoid and violent behavior. And we talked about the use of meth as an excuse for the violence displayed against Matthew Shepard in that earlier case. So we're now mixing, you know, a traumatic brain injury with the CTE along with multiple different uh, drugs being used by Cameron. And, you know, all of that is affecting his behavior, his aggression levels. They're, they're blocking, you know, normal thought receptors in the brain. And so, while there's no motive for the attack on Valerie that was ever shared with the public, I'm also not going to speculate on that here because it's just not relevant to the case. I've offered up several possible contributing factors to the, to the violent and erratic behavior shown by Cameron that night, so it's not really worth making any assumptions about what led up to uh, her death. It's just kind of one of those things that we'll probably never know what was said between them or, or where, if there was anything said between them. So again, I'm just not going to go down that route because... There's nothing in the investigation that says anything about that. All we know is that at some point he made the decision to uh, attack and kill his mother, and then officers were forced to uh, fire upon him. Now, a lawsuit was brought against the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office by the Ely family in July of 2020, alleging ma major failures by the deputies on scene that led to the death of both Valerie and Cameron. And this is we're going to break a lot of stuff down. We've talked about Valerie's death 
And while I wasn't there to triage her and make the decision myself as to whether or not life-saving intervention was appropriate, I also won't assume that different behavior or more risky behavior was the right course of action. We all play a lot of Monday morning quarterback when it comes to these cases, and we often use knowledge law enforcement didn't have at the time to judge them for their actions. So even if you use that hindsight to say, you know, Cameron didn't approach officers for 90 minutes, so why couldn't they just given her aid in the first five minutes? If you use that approach, you also have to ask yourself, well, what if Cameron came back to the kitchen as EMS was working on Valerie and officers are tied up questioning Ron and, and doing a quick safety search of the very large residence, then everybody's gonna be saying, you know, why did they let EMS get attacked or killed? And they should have not had him on the scene in the first place, especially if she was beyond help. So it's one of those, you can't look at the situation afterwards and say, why didn't they do something differently when they didn't know what was gonna happen? Because at the same time, you can say, well, what if something that didn't happen did happen? What would your response be about that behavior at that point? So it's, again, it's that double-edged sword. It's the darned if you do, darned if you don't that law enforcement runs into. And sometimes you just have to make this decision that's the safest for everybody. And I think that's what they did in this case was not allow EMS on there until they had enough deputies to make sure the scene was completely safe and likely... The fact that she was declared dead on arrival by EMS means that she was probably dead on arrival when the deputies got there. So there wasn't really a, a, a it was one of those high risk, low reward situations of bringing in EMS right away as opposed to just doing the low risk, you know, probably no reward situation of, of just leaving the body there. And, and speaking of the body, um, the lawsuit also pointed out that the bodies were left in the home overnight and should have been removed earlier. But here again, we run into that double-edged sword. A lot of the times when I worked uh, homicides or suspicious deaths or suicides, I would not request the coroner be respond to the scene until I had done the majority of my crime scene investigation. And that's because when the coroner gets there, their job is, is to look at the scene overall, but also to look at the body. So there was a lot of work that had to be done by crime scene techs before the coroner showed up. And that was a lot of measurements, a lot of this, a lot of that. That gets complicated because then once you get the coroner on scene, they're on scene until they take the body away. And they've got other potential bodies to go deal with and everything like that. So it was just kind of standard procedure for us to wait until we were ready for the coroner. And so now you're, if you're saying, well, you want to get the body out of here as quick as possible, then you can't turn around and complain, which they would have, that the investigation was too quick if you clear the coroner to come in within an hour or two and the body's you know, taken during the night. So it's just one of those things where if they'd done it the other way, then the, the lawsuit would have said that they removed the body too early and didn't do a thorough enough investigation. So, uh, And the main part of the lawsuit was centered around the officer-involved shooting. and. I've already talked about some of this stuff, but this is where things are get controversial for some listeners. Now the lawsuit has been decided, but before I'm gonna talk about the outcome of it, I'm gonna kind of mention some of my opinions based on the facts that I have here. We talked about the expectation of body cameras and audio recordings. I do see this as a failure of the police department, not necessarily of the deputies themselves that night. Now, we had the capabilities under our policies to turn off uh, body mics or what 
or different pieces of equipment if we were going to be talking about a case or working part of the active investigation of a case. So if I'm not expecting somebody to come on scene, I don't have to record all my conversations as I'm discussing parts of the investigation with my partners because it just it makes a lot of my potential body cam video not accessible by defense attorneys at that point anyway because we're discussing parts of the case and so then and they're the ones that are probably going to want the information on that body cam video anyway so i'd rather they see the stuff that they're supposed to see and then i can speak in private with my partners about the stuff that i'm supposed to be able to speak in private about and oftentimes if there was a situation where all of a sudden while the scene is deemed secure and everybody's kind of in a more relaxed mode and just investigating, everybody's turned off their stuff, then all of a sudden the situation changes real quick and it's not always the first thought process in, in, in officers' minds, especially if they're new to body cameras or body mics, is to flip that back on. So I will fault if the equipment wasn't up to par, that's not on the deputies, that's on the, the department and the budget and, and everything that goes along with that. but. This is a case that I think wouldn't have gotten as much scrutiny or as much hindsight kind of uh, looking at it if if there had just been body cams and or better audio mics to, to hear. Because that was one of the big differences was the deputies saying, camera's yelling, I have a gun, and reaching for his waistband versus what you hear on the audio which is not that because they're static now there was parts of that were brought up in the uh, lawsuit about the 22 shots which they you know, mentioned was excessive and it does sound like a lot of shots but we also have to remember that this is four officers shooting so this is roughly 5.5 shots per officer in a critical incident and we talked about the chances that sometimes officers will unload a full magazine and think they only pulled the trigger two or three times just because of all the stuff that we talked about. I'm not going to go through that all again, but you know, yes, 22 shots sounds bad. And if it was two officers, there might be even, might look even worse. But I think with four officers in this situation, it's probably deemed to be pretty average for the amount of, of, times that the the suspect was shot because it's not as if one officer is going to shoot you know six times and then take a break and the other one's going to look and say well i better shoot six more and another takes a break and says well i better shoot five more and on and on like that it's uh you know these are all occurring at the same time the officers are seeing things at the same time so you know five to six shots each is is can be done in a matter of a second or two so Again, I don't see it as excessive, but it was claimed that way in the lawsuit. Uh, the location of the shots, we talked about that. Now, there was a lot of talk about Cameron being shot in the back. And this, I think, goes again back to the survivability. How long was Cameron alive when these shots are occurring? What we often see with shootings in the back, I know there was one in Milwaukee several years ago that was all into question. And there was a lot of research that was done into this. And when a suspect's running away and or turned away from an officer, I should say, with their back to the officer, they can turn, you know, just from the hip, 
point a gun at the officer and turn back around. And in the officer's reaction time to either draw or even if he's already drawn his weapon, um, he or she might fire as that that suspect then turns around and starts to run and they're still reacting to the initial threat they haven't their their mind hasn't even processed the fact that the guy the the suspect has started to run yet and so when they pull that trigger the first you know three or four shots are going into the suspect's back so it looks really really bad but in reality it's again part of just the the reaction time the physiological breakdown of how long it takes an officer to draw recognize a threat draw and fire and even if the threat's already diminished to a certain degree at that point the the suspect started to run or whatever it might be the decision was already made half a second before that to pull to pull the trigger on that suspect but in that half second the suspect's already turned around and started to run so it's it's one of those things where officer may have continued to fire as cameron fell to the ground and maybe he rolled because again he's not incapacitated based on the location of the shots and some of those shots may have entered his back and then it looks like officers are shooting him in the back so again i don't have the full recreation i don't have what the officers said that cameron did after that lunge because that's kind of where it would be more pertinent if he ended up rolling around on the ground if he ended up trying to retreat at some point um again and i'm this is one of those things where i'm not going to completely side on law enforcement but i am going to say I can understand how shots in the back happen in these critical incidents where there isn't an immediate incapacitation. And so shot location itself isn't as definitive as people want to say that it is. Then there was talks about the differing statements from officers. And this is said that this was showing proof of a cover-up, but in reality, I think it's showing proof that there wasn't a cover-up because if you have the same exact story from all four officers, that to me is more of a cover-up because they're going to be seeing things from different vantage points, uh, seeing things in different lights because somebody might be closer to a street light. Um, one half of Cameron's body may have been lit up by a light on the house and the other half might not be. So they're going to see things differently and they're going to use different terms. Guys that watch a lot of sports... Uh, and women that watch a lot of sports are going to refer to different moves that somebody makes based on a sport that they played or watched, whereas somebody who doesn't watch sports isn't likely going to say they sprang up from the ground like a lineman. And so if one says, you know, they made some movement quickly in an upward manner, and the other one says they made some kung fu move, that doesn't mean that, that the person didn't do the same move. It's just being described two different ways. And then we talk about stuff like the, the tunnel vision and the memory loss and everything like that. That's that's all going to create a, a difference of statements that is expected, whereas them providing all the same exact statement word for word is going to, in my mind, be more of, of a cover-up at that point. And this is the big one. We see it all the time. The unarmed suspect is shot by police. That makes it unjustified. Well... It's not, we don't have a do not fire unless fired upon directive in this country of police officers. And thank God we don't because we would have a lot more dead police officers. Uh, when I was in the military, that was part of our rules of engagement. It was we weren't to fire unless we were fired upon. And maybe it's because it's military. Maybe it's because we had you know better armor and better everything when we are in the military that that 
you know, we couldn't just fire on somebody just because they had a weapon or just because we thought they were going to shoot at us um, in the military. But as police officers, if you've got somebody who says that they have a gun and they reach for their waistband, you don't have to wait until that suspect produces that weapon and points it at you and pulls a trigger. Because again, the reaction time means that if you wait for that to happen, the suspect's going to have two or three shots off on you before you even have a chance to, to potentially get a shot off on them and, and likely you won't even get a shot off on, on, on them. So we recognize that and the Supreme Court has recognized that officers have the right to take somebody else's life if they feel like the threat of death or great bodily harm is present. We don't have to wait until that threat is there. And can that be abused? Absolutely it can be. But in this situation, based on what the deputies are saying, I don't feel like that was the case. If they're saying that this guy had a gun and jumped up and made a furtive movement towards his waistband and, and pointing the gun at, you know, or, or to, to basically grab a gun or a weapon, this is 100% you know, one of those situations where it's justified. You don't have to wait to find out afterwards, oh, well, he didn't have a gun, therefore I shouldn't have shot him. And then being you know it's it's hard to say what based on the the cte and the drug use with cameron whether this was a suicide by cop incident it may have been and those incidents do happen and they, they happen all unfortunately all too often around the country and if somebody wants to be shot by police officers especially somebody with some type of a security guard background training or something like that they know exactly what they need to say and do in order to be shot and officers don't have much of a choice. They can't roll the dice and hope that the person is only doing suicide by cop and isn't actually trying to shoot them. And so oftentimes these unarmed suicide by cop situations, you know, it, again, doesn't make it unjustified just because they're not armed. And I say all that because unless you've been in critical incidents or deadly force situations, it's really easy to Monday morning quarterback with full 2020 hindsight and say, well, Cameron Ely shouldn't have been shot. And in that case, I would, I would agree if, if, if all officers had the advantage of 2020 hindsight and, and Monday morning quarterbacks before incidents, if you could tell me that, that Cameron did not have a gun and officers knew he did not have a gun and they shot him anyway, that's 100% gonna change my opinion on the shooting. But that's not the case. And likely, you know, these four officers are now gonna have to live with the fact that they took somebody's life who was unarmed. And that's something that none of them want to deal with. And I guarantee you that, well, I shouldn't guarantee, I can say with, with high certainty that based on the officers I worked with, the officer I was, and I should say most of the officers that I knew that nobody wants to be involved in a, a uh, officer involved shooting because there is between criminal charges, the stress, civil charges, the lawsuits, all that kind of stuff that can potentially come your way, even in a justified shooting. It's, it's, a, it's, it's not worth it. Plus, you have to deal with the psychological issues of taking somebody else's life. So it's not like those four officers went to that house that night saying, well, if we can find a way, let's let's kill somebody tonight. No, they were presented with a threat and they did what they were trained to do. And now they're going to have to live with it the rest of their life. And the final point with the unarmed thing is I used to tell people, 
anytime a police officer comes across another person, there's always one gun involved. And people kind of went, what? Like, you mean everybody carries a gun? No, the police officer has a gun. So if somebody wants to, there's other ways for them to commit suicide by cop, and that can be just going after the police officer's gun. And now that can be mitigated by if you have multiple officers or the suspect size, but in this case, you've got a guy who's six foot five, 240 pounds, and is a former athlete. If you let him charge you, even if he doesn't have a gun, if you let him charge you, there's not many cops that I knew that were six foot five, 240 pounds. There was a couple that on the department that I worked for out of 75 officers, there was a couple that were probably close to that size. But me being 6'2", 6'3", 215 or so, you know, I was considered one of the, the bigger officers on the department, at least in height and, and, and weight and size and that kind of stuff. So a 6'5", 240-pound guy has me beat, and especially if he's younger and he's got drugs in his system, all that kind of stuff. So if, even if he's unarmed and he gets into a, a wrestling match with me, there's a chance that he can get my gun away and use it to kill me or, or my partners or both. So, But that's enough about my public awareness statement in regards to officer-involved shootings. I knew I would kind of go off the deep end um, with it, being this is my first one, and if we cover any ones in the future, I, I don't have to go hopefully as deep into all the details. Um, but the, the uh, I mentioned the lawsuit was settled. It was brought forth by the Eli family in 2020, and I shouldn't say settled. It was dismissed without merit by a federal jury in late 2022, and that was indicating there was a preponderance of evidence to show that the shooting of Cameron Ely was justified in the eyes of several citizens. So it was one of those lawsuits that the county sheriff's office wasn't willing to settle in court wasn't willing to make a, a payment on it or that or the the family themselves wasn't willing to take a, a lower payment or whatever it was I, I didn't get into the details of where the money was but basically neither side could agree that they could settle it out of court it went all the way through a jury the jury saw the evidence and decided that the shooting was justified um, but just because it's justified doesn't mean it's any less of a tragic outcome to an already tragic situation in which two lives were taken for reasons only open to speculation. And that's it for the case of Valerie Ely. I realize most of this episode was not related to her death, and it doesn't make her murder any less tragic. It's just that this case had a lot more to do with the information surrounding her death and the fatal shooting of, of the suspect, her own son. And that's it for today. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. And that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.